0: Turn up your your volume Because you're about to listen to the Sick Podcast. The The eye test with Pierre McGuire and Jimmy Murphy. The Stanley Cup winning Colorado Avalanche. And after 22 years, Raymond Mark! The sickest NHL podcast. It's gonna be
2: sick. And welcome to another edition of the Eye Test on the Sick Podcast Network. Pierre Maguire and myself, Jimmy Murphy, here. And uh, we've got another great guest lined up for you today. Pierre, Bruce Boudreaux will be joining us shortly. And uh, I've got a feeling might laugh a couple times or two while we're talking to Bruce. What do you think? I hope so.
1: I mean, that's what he's coming for. No, I'm just kidding. He's a very funny guy, a very smart guy, excellent hockey person. You know, Jimmy, I was telling you yesterday and even today about, how good a player Bruce was, and I don't think he ever gets enough credit. He's obviously a very good coach, but he was uh, just a tremendous, tremendous player and, um, you know, played on some amazing teams with the Toronto Marlboros and, you know, Memorial cup winning teams played on some great teams in the minors. Um, he, He had huge point totals, gigantic offensive point totals and never really got enough acclaim for that. I don't believe outside of Canada anyways.
2: Yeah, yeah, he did, and um, we're going to get him on, and he's actually messaging me right now. We're just going to figure something out there, but he will come on soon. But Pierre, I mean, yeah, you were showing me that, and also the thing that I noticed too when we were going through his stats was in a lot of those seasons where he's having a lot of uh, points as well, he's getting a ton of pims, so he's he's doing everything down there. I mean, was he like the, the one of the early versions of a of a power forward or what?
1: <laughs> no not at his size he was not a powerful player. No. um but he was ferocious on the puck and from the blue line in he was he was a demon for sure um you know again when he was near the end of his playing I mm-hmm. was just starting in pro hockey so he was playing in the minor leagues then um and I was out scouting and doing a lot of work with our farm team when I was in Pittsburgh our farm team was actually in Muskegon uh Michigan and yep. you know so it the big rival, Mus- one of the big rivals for Muskegee is, is Fort Wayne, where Bruce obviously spent a lot of time. You heard Doc Emmerich talk about that, so I thought that was uh, special. But, you know, what I remember the most about Bruce was, especially early in his career, he was a phenom. as a junior player with the Toronto Marlboros. Their coach was George Armstrong. He had two pretty good players that were young kids that were playing there then by the name of the Howes, Mark and Marty Howe. Um that was a legendary story back then when two kids from Michigan, whose father was Gordy, would right. come out and play junior hockey uh, in Toronto. Um, but he had so many big name teammates. Jimmy, I got to tell you, Mark Napier was a first round pick in the Montreal Canadiens. John Tanelli, Mike McEwen, Mike Kitchen, who had a great career, not only as a player, but also as a coach. Uh, John Anderson, who had an unbelievably distinguished career as a player and a coach. Uh, Kevin Devine, who's still scouting out there now. Uh, but what I remember the most is uh, the stories about Mark and Marty Howe, and, and about Bob the Count Daly. Remember Bob the Count Daly? I name, but enlighten me. Yeah, uh, he was a big, tall, rangy defenseman, and um, in Vancouver, and uh, you know, and then obviously in Philadelphia. But he got the nickname the Count because he had this thing that looked,
2: you know, dark, raw, like black, black hair, and he just looked like <laughs> <at> Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> It's great. Actually, another thing I want to bring up with uh with Bruce too, Pierre, is uh, you know, it's it's obviously part of a tragedy, but also too just that he knew these guys too. You know, I knew Mark Bavis and Ace Bailey well. And and you know, for those that don't know out there, um, Bruce was supposed to be on that same flight that you know, unfortunately. Well, they were all
1: going to LA. They were all going to LA for training
2: camp. And I believe Bruce was running their farm team then, if I'm not mistaken. That's- Coach of Manchester, and uh, at the last minute, Andy Murray, then the head coach of the Kings, uh, called a coaches' meeting. So he asked some of the he asked the coaches to get out there a night early, and so the, it, Bruce ends up taking off on September 10th, as opposed to the 11th, and he wasn't on that flight. And uh, you know, so he basically I was just reading about it before we got on. I mean, he says, "Yeah, Andy Murray basically saved my life." But yeah, I mean, they were great guys, and um, I I would have. Man, to be in the same room with uh, with Ace Bailey and Bruce. We talk about trading stories and making people laugh. I mean, I don't know how much you knew of Ace, Pierre, but he was a uh, jokester. He was a prankster.
1: Uh, I'm going to, again, come clean on this one. I uh, I spent a lot of time with Ace on the road. Um, he used to yeah, tell some great, great stories. stories. Some of them, I don't know if they were true or not, but they sure sounded great. Uh, <laughs> and, and what I, you know, I knew the bavises really well because I had – uh both of them at the Europa Cup when they were playing at Catholic Memorial uh back way back when and so I knew the brothers really well. Um but with Ace it was funny because he was so tight with Wayne Gretzky obviously. And yeah. he had he had amazing he had amazing stories. And they were all great, yeah. they were very flattering towards Gretz, but it was always about how great a player Wayne was and I was like thanks Ace you don't have to you know tell me about how good he was
2: I think yeah. I, saw,
1: I yeah. saw the movie enough and coached when he was playing. So uh, but no, you know, the, the one thing I can tell you about Bruce that really stands out to me is the commitment to the game. He totally yeah. committed. I mean, you know, to be an elite junior player when he was on the team that he was, and then his first pro team was in Johnstown. You know, the Johnstown Jets, people don't know that. It's, a, it's not like he just went from playing in Toronto and all of a sudden ended up in the NHL. Yeah, um, it, it was tough. I mean, he didn't have an easy way to go. And the, he could have quit many times, and he chose not to. And I have so much respect for people that do that in the game. It's it's really, it's very flattering to their character. And, and Bruce deserves that a lot. Um, his character is unreproachable.
2: Yeah, and look, I mean, I I'm, I've talked to players that play for him. They said he's he's hard, but he's fair. And you know, and he if he senses that respect that he has for the game in you, the player, uh, then you're going to be okay. That's all he wants to see there, and and he appreciates that. So. You know, I, I think I'd love to talk to him about maybe, you know, some players that kind of potentially maybe reminded him of himself and and, and the journey he had been through, you know, because we've seen a couple guys that have gone through that, obviously, uh, in the league. And um, I'll tell you, though, I just remember, and I was telling you off air earlier today, I was looking for some clips, couldn't really find many great ones. But, you know, there was that, we can't play it. There was just too many... Um, Special words, we'll put it that way. Uh, but that that clip uh, from uh, the Road to the Winter Classic, and this isn't the heyday of that show, Pierre. Remember, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. they, I think they had just started it, actually, and you worked on it. Um, and he comes in there after they give up – hes coaching the Capitals—and he comes in after they give up a goal at the end of a period. And they're in the in the midst of a losing streak, it appeared. And he just gives it to them, you know. And it it was great. And he just walks out of the room it, 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 like he. That was it. He wasn't taking. He's like, I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna get it off my chest. Here you go. You do what you may with it. And of course, they went out and tied the game. But um, it, it was it was cool. It was it was fun to see. And I wonder now, Pierre. And I, you know, that's not that long ago. It's 2012. I know it's 12 years, but that's not that long. But it's amazing yeah. how much the how much the game has changed. It would would a speech like that work? You know, where you're dropping f bomb after f bomb after f, and you're just saying you guys aren't trying, you're pathetic out there right now. That can that still work in the game today? Yeah, yeah,
1: 100%. It does. Yeah, and I'll give you an an example because I was watching the game and I was texting you. The Ottawa Senators were down three nothing to the Nashville Predators, yep, on on Monday night, and they looked bad. They didn't look a little bit bad, they looked real bad. And I know that Parker Kelly was one of the guys that stood up in the room, and I know again, Parker. Played for a real good friend of mine, Mark Habshide, out in the Western Hockey League. Mark used to tell me all the time, you know, how much of a character person Parker was. And I got to know Parker really well when he was playing for Troy Mann, one of Bruce Boudreaux's former players down in Biloxi, Mississippi. And, you know, I just – I I heard that. And you asked me about can those kinds of talks work. The answer is yeah. And I'll tell you one thing. As mad as Parker Kelly may have been in that Ottawa Center's dressing room, Jacques Martin was equally upset. And it takes a lot to get jock Matt. Yeah. So he clearly got their attention because he came back and won the game four or three in overtime on yeah. a Claude Drew uh, overtime winning goal. But Jimmy, it works. It just can't work every day. Right. You know, right. And, and that's exactly. where the line has to be drawn. I, I'll give you an example. A college coach called me this morning and he was asking me what I thought about what he did just I said, well, what'd you do? I didn't, I wasn't there. Um, and he says, I was so upset with our guys that I threw them off the ice. And then I told my assistants to bring them back on about 10 minutes later. I go, how did it work? He goes, our practice was much better. He goes, do you think that's a good idea? I said, oh, yeah. You can't do more than three times in a season. But, yeah, it's it's a good idea. Don't worry. Nobody got hurt.
2: All right. Well, one man, as we said, who has had to use those speeches, uh, and they worked, Join us now, right now, uh, a longtime NHL coach, and you can find him now on the NHL Network doing his analysis there. And that's Bruce Boudreaux joining us here on the eye test. Oh, we don't uh, don't get your sound, Bruce. Let's see. He's looking dapper, though, I'll tell you that. He's ready to work. (laughs) (laughs) We'll We'll get him.
1: Slowly but surely.
2: Yep. Try the internal volume, Bruce, if you could. He's trying everything.
1: Don't get yeah. we'll get it. Don't worry. We'll get it.
2: We'll get him. No worries.
1: Well, I think I've I've seen that hotel room before. I believe that's in Secaucus, New Jersey. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I actually think I stayed there as well, Pierre. You
1: know, I, just, I did a Rob Rossi does such a good job covering the Pittsburgh Penguins. And on Monday, actually, it was last week. He called me up and said, "Would you give me an interview on Yarum or Yager?" I said, "Be an honor." I, oh,
2: great!
1: You know, being around him, and so I did the interview on Monday. And one of the stories I told him was. One of the coolest things, when our Yarmir was 18 and 19, we used to play the Devils a ton. And sometimes, even when we play the Rangers, we'd stay in New Jersey. We'd stay in Secaucus, New Jersey, Jimmy. And one time, I was going out for dinner with some friends, and they picked me up. And we were driving, and I see this big, robust guy walking with a cap on, a winter cap. And it's Yarmir Yager walking by himself as with rosy cheeks with eating a Kit Kat, a giant <laughs> Kit Kat chocolate bar. And nobody knew who he was, except for me, who was one of the coaches. And I'm watching this happen. I'm going, that could never happen today. He could never walk down the street like that. So, anyways. uh,
2: Yeah. Look, when is that, uh, by the way, that they're honoring him?
1: uh, It's in February. It's near the end of February, I believe. Okay. Um, So, it's coming up. Just before Mario Lemieux has his fantasy camp in Pittsburgh, which uh, – You'll be I'm at it to be at Yeah, Yeah. Uh, bring some it's nice in. Whenever you get that invitation, it's always really nice to be included. Yeah. Um, Marios. I can tell you, Jimmy, I know Wayne has one, and I know other guys around the league have their, I'm sure Mark Messi has one too. And mm-hmm. I'm sure they're unbelievable. The one thing I know about Marios camp, he, I, he told me this last, treat the guys like they're pro players, bring them in and treat them like they're pros and, and they do. And, and, you know, working with Brian Tracci there and Eddie Johnston, and you look at the Joey Mullen and all. We, we've lost, Jimmy, I got to tell you this. We've lost a couple guys to the NHL. Mark Recky's coaching in Columbus and Paul Coppins coaching in Edmonton. They were on our coaching staff last year. Yeah. We're on. So we're a farm team now. The Mary Lemieux fantasy camp is a farm team. <laughs> yeah, that's what we are. <laughs> We need woodrow has got to come in. We'll bring Bruce in.
2: Yeah, that would be great. That would be great, and I'd love to get some guests on from that as well, Pierre. We'll see if we can drag some guys. Uh, on. We have
1: some good guests. You yep. may even be able to get one guy in particular that I know you want.
2: Yes. You want number yep.
1: sixty-six.
2: there. Yeah, that would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. Just before we we're trying to work on Bruce right now. We'll get him in a second. But on staying on Yager, Pierre, what took so long for for this to happen in Pittsburgh? I mean. I don't know.
1: Well, fun for him, he's still playing. Uh-huh. And, you know, you look at the amount of teams that he played on, um, you know, after he left Pittsburgh. Yes, there was Washington. There was New York. There was Pittsburgh, or There was a Boston. There was Calgary. There was New Jersey. I mean, he played in a lot of play- – plus, people forget he played in Omsk. He was in Omsk for two years over in, in the right. eastern part of Russia. And, you know, I've been to Omsk, and I can tell you, Jimmy, it's about a seven-and-a-half-hour plane ride from Moscow. It's not like it's around the corner. Fun. So, and I think Yarmer really got comfortable going back home to Cladno, owning the team, presiding over the team, being the general manager, being the okay. coach, and also playing. Nice. I, I just, that's so, uh, I think there was a lot. And then ownership changes, obviously, in Pittsburgh. So yeah. there's a lot that goes into it.
2: It's great to see. What was it like? Uh, we're still waiting on Bruce there. What was it like when, when he got to Pittsburgh, just the, the mania, so to speak, around him when he arrived? Uh,
1: It was pretty significant, but you have to remember back then, Pittsburgh was a hockey town, but it also was, and it still is a huge football town. the Steelers were unbelievably good back when Yarmir first turned pro. Um, But the guy that never gets enough credit for the Yarmir-Yager situation is Craig Patrick. Mm -hmm. Yarmir slipped to five. There's no other way to describe it. You know, Owen Nolan went two. Peter Nedved went. Oh Nolan went one. Peter Nedved went two. Keith Primo went three. Mike Ricci went four, and Yarmer Yager went five. So you do that draft again today, and you, knowing what you know now, and you say, there's no way Yager goes at five, but he went at five because a lot of teams didn't think he would come out. Whereas you knew Nolan was going to play right away. You knew that uh, Nedved was going to play right away. You knew that Primo had a real good chance to play right away. And you knew Ricci was going to play right away. So everybody wanted players that could play right away. If you drafted Yager, you knew he could play, but could you get him out? Craig Patrick's experience from the 1980 Olympic team and the connections that he made from that experience opened up a huge pathway to get of out. It was Czechoslovakia then. It wasn't Czech, Chechia like it is now. It was Czechoslovakia. I'm Alex Rodriguez.
0: And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore dealmaking across sports, media, and entertainment.
2: Where's Craig right now? Pierre? Craig's in Pittsburgh. He'll be at the camp. He's at Mario's. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he's there. He's good. But he's not working anywhere in the game right now.
1: Not right now. No, unless he's doing some work for the Penguins. I, I, I don't think yeah. he is. Yeah, he was yeah, doing I some think. work for Buffalo for a while when Timmy Murray was there as a yeah. general manager, and then he went back to Pittsburgh. But I don't, I don't sure if Craig's
2: working right now. I feel like he doesn't get enough credit. I don't know. Maybe it's just because.
1: I'm that, that's one of the things I told Rob Rossi when I did the interview. I said, you know, there's so many people, so many moving parts on Yarmor, but the man that really had the vision to make it all work was Craig. He, he yeah. really was a visionary on that, and he's the he was the architect. I know people like to call Bill Torrey the architect for what he did on Long Island, and justifiably so. Craig Patrick is every bit the architect in Pittsburgh. I mean, people need to know. That team that he inherited in 1990 missed the playoffs in the last day of the year. Uve Krupp scored a CNI shot from the blue line for the Buffalo Sabres. It knocked okay. Pittsburgh out, and yep. that's when Craig brought in the late Bob Johnson, Scotty Bowman, Barry Smith, and myself. And it started, you know, because of Craig's vision, everything started to change there.
2: I hear you. Before we leave that and hopefully get to Bruce here, just talking about that generation of Penguins. Now, I know you brought up Brian Trottier a lot Pierre, but what other guys maybe that flew under the radar more league-wide that fans didn't know about were, were real instrumental in, in making that a dynasty? Uh,
1: well, Phil Bork was a big part of it. Bobby Airy was a big – the character guys on our team, players that Bruce really yeah. liked. Our character players, Jay Caulfield – uh, guys who would fight for the team, not for themselves. Uh, they really matter. Troy Loney was another one. It was hard. You know, after we won the cup in '92, people forget this. Ottawa and Tampa came into the league. So we had to, right after we won the cup, we had to expose players in the waiver yeah. draft. It was really hard. Scotty and I went to the waiver draft in, in Montreal, um, because we were obviously gonna we knew we were gonna lose players and It was really tough. I mean, we won the cup, and it was a quick transition. I'm going to say it was like four or five days, and we were up in Montreal for the draft. And and we so there were some hard feelings. Yeah. I felt bad for the players, and the players were kind of upset that they had been exposed. Yeah. Um, And then it wasn't long after Anaheim came into the league, and, you know, then all of a sudden you kind of lose guys. I mean, it's just the reality of expansion. It's kind of
2: tough. Yeah. I mean, that had to be tough, I'll tell you. Well, we are still trying to get Bruce here. I apologize to our viewers. Uh, we'll get him on. And we're getting a word from the production right now. It's we'll Just
1: get him on the phone. We'll be good.
2: Yeah, that's what they're doing. They're going to get him on the phone call. We'll go old school. I don't mind that at all.
1: Hey, listen, we started that way with Doc Emmerich, and eventually we got him on camera, and he was showing us his Michigan swag. Yeah,
2: that's great. Remember that? <laughs> Michigan swag. Well, actually, I'm seeing some, uh, some comments here just about when we get Bruce on, and uh, I – Somebody just reminded me, too. I mean, uh, he was coaching in the Spangler Cup. Totally forgot that, that Bruce was over there. So maybe get his uh, take on it. He played
1: over there, too. I think Bruce played in Germany, if I remember correctly.
2: Yep. Yeah, good stuff. All right. So I think we got him now here. Bruce, you there? Finally, I can hear you guys. I feel like an idiot, but I can hear you. It's not your fault, my friend. Trust me. The more technology we get, the worse it gets, is my opinion, Bruce. I don't know about you, but. (laughs) Well, I
0: mean, it's going 100 miles an hour and I'm
2: still riding a horse. (laughs) I hear you. Well, welcome to the eye test. Uh, Jimmy Murphy, Pierre Maguire here, of course, with you. Um, Bruce, how's everything going? How's how's life?
0: You know what? I mean,
2: uh, I think it's going pretty good. I mean, I I think I, I
0: still wish I was like everybody else still doing what we used to do and love, but it, I mean, I'm doing, I'm talking to people about hockey a lot. So that's, uh, that's good. I'm on the NHL network, uh, like today and, uh, yesterday, and I usually do about five or six days a month, I, I do a lot of XM radio and I, um, have a junior team in Hershey, uh, that's right. or it's like probably junior B probably if we were looking at it. Right. But, uh, we have, uh, Eight French young men on our team, and we're invading Quebec to get good players, and we're doing pretty good. So it's, uh, you know, keeping myself pretty busy. Good stuff.
1: Bruce, the first time I ever heard your name, I was a young kid growing up in Montreal, and you were playing for the Toronto Marlboros, and you had a legendary coach, George Armstrong, that was part of the last Stanley Cup winning team for the Toronto Maple Leafs. I always wanted to ask you this over all the years I've known you and coached against you and broadcast your games where did your passion for hockey come from because you are an addict
0: yeah i i think you're correct uh pierre i get mad at myself because all i do is watch hockey i'm going when it's when there's no hockey like um the last couple of days when we're going near the all-star break i'm going crazy but i mean i it started when i was uh you know my dad uh, built a rink in the backyard uh, when i was about three and i started uh skating and and I opened. Uh, I remember we were the first guys on the ice in 1959 at a legendary arena in Toronto called George Bell Arena. Yep. And uh, and just started playing every chance I could get. Go to in the backyard every day. Anybody that had a backyard rink. Uh, and I, you know, I followed the Leafs uh, on every radio broadcast. Uh, and back in the day, it didn't come on till eight o'clock, so you missed the first period but you would you listen to it and 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 then watch the games and everything I did was about hockey and uh, I'll tell you a, a quick thing cuz my dad always used to mention this uh, he asked me at 5 years old or 6 years old what I wanted to be when I grew up and I said a hockey player and I never um never strayed from that ever there was never anything that came in number 2 it was just hockey and so Unfortunately or fortunately, I mean, it's been good fortune to me, but I mean,
2: it's, uh, it's the, the passion I've had, and it'll probably be there till the day I die. God bless. God bless. So let me ask you, when you, you, you're a player, you go through so many teams, you're staying in a game, I imagine obviously that passion is what got you through, eh, Bruce?
0: Yeah, and and the you know what? The passion and the belief that uh, miracles happen. And what I mean by that is, and there well, you will remember a guy by the name of Connie Madigan.
1: 100%. I Connie Madigan. Yep.
0: When he started with the St. Louis Blues. And once I became like uh, what you would call a full-time minor league guy, uh, I kept thinking he was the guy that I kept thinking. He was 38 and he made the St. Louis Blues. So when I'm playing at 36 and 37, I still had the dream of playing in the NHL. And I mean, I did a lot. Of, it was a lot of um, w- you know wishing and hoping. But uh, you know, if you have a dream and and you believe it can happen, as sometimes it can. And uh, I never wanted to give up the hope or the dream. It's it's probably the same way now. Is I watch every game and I'm saying, well, you know what? Maybe there's still a chance uh, at my ripe old age that somebody'll uh, call me to coach again, and I jump at it. That's why I jumped at the Spangler Cup and. Thought it was a great experience and and you, you know i never have told anybody that i want to retire because i don't there's nothing else i'd rather do than than be involved in hockey
1: jimmy you know what's amazing about bruce so he's a kid that grows up in toronto has his passion for the toronto Maple Leafs. i'm a kid that grows up in montreal i got this huge passion for the montreal Canadiens. But I didn't get drafted by the Montreal Canadiens. Bruce actually got drafted by the Toronto Maple Leafs, and he was also drafted by the Minnesota Fighting Saints in the West in the World Hockey Association. But right. he played for the Marlboros. So, Bruce, you can tell our listeners because a lot of them still don't have a recollection of what the Marlboros were, how big a deal it was to play for the Toronto Marlies when you played junior hockey for them.
0: Well, in the middle '70s, when I played, uh, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs owned everything on Saturday, and uh I mean, they would get all the TVs, the print, everything else in the papers. But we had the same reporters, Frank Orr, um, you know, and and the Sun, John Iaboni, and uh, the Globe and Mail, I um, uh, forget his name, uh, they were all at our games on Sunday. So we owned Sunday. So we had headlines in the front page of all the papers at the beginning of the week. The Leafs had it all the, the begin, at the end of the week, and I mean... We we would um, routinely draw over ten to fifteen thousand people on Sunday afternoons at Marley Games, and and the hockey was outstanding. And I will I, you know not that it's not outstanding now, but back then you didn't get uh, drafted till you were twenty one. So if you can picture like when we were playing in the playoffs my first year, and Ottawa had Dennis Potvin and Ian Turnbull, they would be in their third and fourth year. In the NHL, if you can picture some of these young players now being in their third and fourth year playing in the NHL, how good the league was because every team had their superstars and, and players like that. So it was a great league, and we got an awful lot of press, and that's probably why I didn't go to high school even though I was in high school.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you knew how to read the newspapers. I knew that. You know how to read the newspapers. <laughs> What was it like being around Mark and Marty Howe and did Gordy ever show up for those Marlboro practices or games when you were playing there?
0: When they played in Toronto, uh, Detroit would play in Toronto on Saturday nights and we'd play uh, Sunday. Gordy always stayed behind it to watch those guys. And first of all, they were great guys and we all lived in the same area. Mark picked me up for practice every day. We became extremely good friends. Um, But uh, I'll never forget this one time. I uh, got hit in in the Sunday game, and I don't know. And, and I stayed on the ice. The trainer had to come come down, and and he took me to the dressing room. And I saw him coming down the stairs. It was Gordy, and he went right into the uh, the dressing room with me. And he gave me words back then. I was still 17, and he gave me advice that I'd never forgotten. And and I used it till the day the last day I quit. He said, "Never stay on the ice, son." He said. Don't ever give the other team the satisfaction of knowing they hurt you. So you do whatever you have to do to get off that ice, no matter how hurt you are. And he looked at me in the eye and he just, and I went, Oh my God. And I, and like, I mean, it just stayed with me forever.
2: Yeah. Ooh, uh, yeah. I wish people uh, heeded that advice today, but that's a whole other story. Uh <laughs> But Bruce, I, I want to ask you, so as you, you, you go on through your hockey career. What did, was there a certain point um, where you start to maybe think, Hey, maybe I'll do, I'll get into some coaching uh, when this is done. Was there something that kind of propelled that or did it just sort of organically happen?
0: No, you know what? I, I think I was probably now say 27 years old and I'm still part of the leap organization in St. Catharines. And, and uh, I, I, became the player assistant coach and my thought always was if i couldn't play the game couldn't play and then i would end up coaching and uh, i i did an article in the sun and i glenn sonmore's sister was the reporter Mm -hmm. and they and it wrote and it sort of just was coming on how much i would like to stay in and coach and and i had so many good coaches to learn by up to that date that i mean It was just something that I couldn't see myself not being involved in hockey. And Mm -hmm. it seemed like a a quick transformation from a player to a coach. And uh, I mean, I didn't know how difficult it was going to be at the time or what have you. But I mean, uh, it was something that at an early age, once I knew I wasn't going to be in the NHL full time, that I said I was going to be a coach at some point.
1: One of the guys that Bruce played with, with the Marlboros, was a guy by the name of Bob the Count Daily. Bruce, any <laughs> good count stories? Well, I mean, I knew
0: he was, at the time. He was six foot five, and he was big, and uh, <laughs> no one. You know what? We didn't have a team that fought, but n- nobody would want to fight when we had guys uh, like him and Glenn Gold up on the team, and uh, and big guys like that. And and but I mean, no real stories except. That he was a great leader. He was our captain that year. And I mean, uh, he went on to great, great years in Philadelphia. But See. I mean, always remember him as a protector. I mean, he wasn't overly fast, but back in that day, being his size, he would sort of just command the room. And uh, that's pretty, you know, like what I remember of him as, like, I mean, I was just a young 17 year old, he was 21, and I would just look up to him and, and whatever he wanted uh, from me, he got. So, I mean, I think I was more scared of him than anything
1: else. But uh,
0: uh, he was a great leader for us.
1: Jimmy, one of the guys that Bruce talked about, Glenn Goldup, was a first-round pick of the Montreal Canadiens, and that's what they drafted yes. for, the physicality part. But, Bruce, there was another player that you I remember playing. because I learned this um, way back when, but John Anderson, who I have so much respect for as a as a player and as a coach and I know you were teammates with him for a long time. What about John? Like what, what were your takes on John early on? He was such a good goal scorer, kind of like you.
0: Well, he was fabulous. I mean, we became best friends. We still are to this day, uh, but he was another, he's a hockey junkie as well. And when he got called up, he was playing junior B when my first year junior A he became a, a, a junior A player the next year, but he was like, just in awe too. Like, I mean, everything in his world was hockey. Um, we would play ball hockey in the summer. We would, uh, uh, we were pretty nerdy, both of us uh, at the time. And, um, all we would do would be, would be talking hockey. And the first chance I got for him to be my assistant coach in, uh, Minnesota, I jumped at it and uh, had him as an assistant coach and he did a great job, quite frankly. And, uh, um, but they changed GMs and the GM wanted his guy in there. So unfortunately, John was at the end of his contract and, and, uh, that was, uh, that was the end of that. But, uh, uh, the, one good story when John was in Hartford and, um, and near the end of his career in Hartford, he, he'd got, he went to Europe and he got sent down. He was going to retire because he was mad about the game. And I convinced him to come to Fort Wayne to play with me. And I said, John, just, you know, come. You know, uh, we'll have a we'll have a great season. We'll have fun because I wanted him not to leave the game being bitter at the game. And and he came and he was had a, an incredible year. He went on to be the MVP of the American Hockey League and played four or five more years before he got into a great coaching career.
1: Jimmy, remember Doc Emmerich, How much he was talking about Bruce Blue? Yeah. So go at it with Bruce on Fort Wayne because obviously he's an iconic. Player there, and his son actually coached there as well. So it's kind of a neat story with Fort Wayne and the Boudreaux family.
0: Oh yeah, Yeah, Ben coached there, won a championship. Uh, uh, Doc, I talked to Doc last week, and he he was telling me about Fort Wayne's newest acquisition. And (laughs) I mean, he still loves Fort Wayne. Um, Still the best uh, play-by-play guy, I think, this side of Danny Gallivan that you'll ever hear. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, just just uh, you know. I still think he could do games. If if they ever went to Fort Huron and had an uh, NHL team, he'd be he'd be the broadcaster for that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, he would. Sure. Oh. Hey, I want to ask, Bruce, those times when you're in, uh, you know, those years in Fort Wayne, I was looking at your stats. Now you got 120 points one year, 84 the other. But next to those 120 points, you had 111 PIMS. And next to the 84, you had – a. You had a hundred PIMS. Uh, so I'm wondering like if you could describe for our viewers who maybe weren't aware of you as a player that what was your style as a player? Cause I said, geez, uh, you know, he sounds like a, a prototypical power forward, but, but Pierce said, no, you were more ferocious. So how would you describe that uh, your style at that point?
0: Well, I was a pretty offensive uh, player, but when I got older, those, those two years, there was one year in between in Fort Wayne there that I, had a hundred and nine points, just threw that in there. But I mean, uh, uh points was my was my last year. And those two years I just got cranky. Like I mean when you get thirty seven and thirty-eight years old and you're playing and people are still taking runs at you, you know, you yeah. get cranky and you and you slash back and you hit back. I remember on that hundred and eleven uh I'd never had a hundred minutes and penalties and and we played Muskegon in our last game and uh Jock Callender uh, Pierre will remember. Always was a big six foot four, but a great scorer as well. He uh, he would spear me and do everything. So the last gave <laughs> me a cross from behind. I went into the board and I got up. I was so mad and I just took a two hander at him. And then he said, "You want to go?" And so all I did was spear him right in the gut, and my stick broke. And I went, "Uh oh!" Like now I got to fight. Right? <laughs> so I don't want to fight. But, I mean, I ended up getting two five-minute majors at 10 in a game, and that put me over 111. Perfect. I'm so happy in the dressing room because I've never had 100 minutes in penalties. I couldn't care about the scoring, but it was the 100 minutes in penalties that made me feel good.
2: That's John, by the way,
1: Jimmy, Jock Callender, one of the nicest guys I've ever had a chance to be around as a coach. Yeah. And, uh, he was a big part of our 92 Stanley Cup winning team in Pittsburgh. People forget that. We had a lot of injuries. Mm -hmm. After the second round with the Rangers and Jocko came up uh, and did a really good job. Um, I'll always remember that. And the way he carried himself uh, was phenomenal around those big players. You know, Bruce is talking about penalty minutes, guys. I have to tell you this, Jimmy, and Bruce will know exactly where I'm going. When he coached in Mississippi, there was a guy there by the name of Kevin Evans. I think Bruce brought him in. The year that I coached in Baton Rouge, I think we played Bruce's team 16 or 18 times. Kevin Evans was about as tough as anybody you would ever see, pound for pound. He reminded me of Robbie DeMaio, who was a really tough guy. Okay, Kevin Evans had five hundred and five penalty minutes the year that he played for Bruce. When <laughs> I Bruce, right?
0: Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. He was the first guy I signed, and, <laughs> and I'll tell you a quick story about that. Is because when I took the job in Mississippi, I looked at the Southern Corridor, and uh, Lafayette had nothing but. Tough guys, and you guys in Baton Rouge had to have tough guys. I'm saying I got to get a tough team here. Or we're not going to yeah. last. And Kevin Evans, I knew the family. Uh, I played with Paul. Dougie was in St. Louis and knew Kevin really well. I knew he was near the end of his career, and uh, I thought, well, I'm going to get him as a player assistant coach. And I mean, he—he's only five foot nine, 165 pounds, but I would put him against anybody in a fight because he was one of those guys that never stopped till he was dead or he killed you.
1: (laughs) So there's a second part to this story because again when you play a team like 16 or 18 times in a season there's a lot of bad blood and we had a kid by the name of Shane Knighty who's a real young player from Saskatchewan so he actually grew up in Manitoba in Saskatchewan so I, I said to Shane I said we were going in to play Bruce's team I said listen they got a guy there who's a professional fighter. His name's Kevin Evans, and he's really good at it. You don't go near him. Understand? You don't go near him. And Evans was obviously knows he's going to get after this kid. And he's coming off the ice frustrated. I see 90 coming off. I said, I'll set the table for you. Trust me on this. If you really want to fight him, don't do it till I tell you it's a good to go. So I waited till Evans was at the end of a shift. And I looked at one of the defense. I said, get off now. And I put 90 on me, Got him at the end of a shift. Oh, boy. <laughs> And that, that was, I think, the last game Shane ever played in East Coast. So he got called up to uh, Grand Rapids, which wasn't even part of our organization. We let him go and eventually made it to a, a very prosperous and successful NHL career. But I remember that game in particular because Kevin Evans, to me, personified with toughness and teamwork, and, and a coach would love a player like that, wouldn't they, Bruce?
0: Absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, he couldn't skate, and but he was good with the puck. but. You know, he's one of those guys that you look at and you want to go to war with or you want to go to battle with because he's mm-hmm. going to do whatever it takes. You know, uh, uh, NHL teams, we had it in Tiger Williams. We had it in, in, in Montreal, had a, half a dozen of those players. Dougie Risebro, I remember. You want to go to war with these guys because they're
2: not going to quit until they win. And Kevin was like that very much. Agreed. Bruce, uh, so let's get when you first start coaching the NHL. If you could just take us back to that, I mean, how did you how did you end up landing that first job? Well,
0: it, it was by good fortune that our parent club was really bad in Washington, and uh, uh, we had won the Calder Cup two years previous, and then the year before we had gone to the finals. And I knew George was uh, George McPhee was uh, he liked what I did behind the bench and um uh washington would had started out They were six fifteen and 2 i think and i got the call at six thirty in the morning and uh and i was just supposed to go there for the weekend and uh I, i'm finding this out years later i mean because dale hunter was the guy that they were gonna uh gonna hire but he said he was coaching in um uh, London at the time right. in, in junior. And he had said, Hey, listen, we got important games this weekend. Do you mind if uh, uh I wait till the weekend's over? So they called me up and we went in Philadelphia. We won that game. Then we won another game. And then Dale said, I got one real big game coming up. Can you wait one more? We won that game. And then George said, why don't we just hold off a little bit, Dale? This seems to be going pretty good right now. And that's, uh that's how it got started. I could have wow. been finished in a weekend or, you know, it's the way, the luck of the draw and the, the players responded really well uh, to me at in at that time. And we had a great year.
1: You had a great player, too, by the name of Alexander Ovechkin. What was it like to manage his minutes?
0: I mean, um, you know what? Uh, it, it sort of was, was sort of easy because, I mean, um, quite frankly, he was an easy guy to deal with. And, and he didn't kill penalties. And I mean, we, you know, he would go out there. The biggest problem sometimes Alex would have a tendency, especially when he was young, is to stay on a little longer than he inti- you would like him to because the other two guys on the line had changed and Alex is still out there. So you had to bring him in and give him the, come on over here, Alex. Can you shorten your shifts a little bit? <laughs> but it was at that time I learned when you're scoring 65 goals, then, um, uh, you know, you can stay out a little longer. And that's where he started staying out for the whole power play. And he did that. And, (laughs) uh, and it's continued 18 years later. He's still staying out to two minutes for the power play.
1: Bruce, Bruce, can he break Gretzky's record without Nick Backstrom?
0: Um, I think they got to, you know, what every good winger, every good goal scorer has a centerman that can lead to the puck. And, uh, uh, right now, Washington doesn't. That's why they're the I think the lowest scoring team, or the second behind Chicago in the in the NHL is is not getting goals. So unless they find somebody in a hurry, like I mean he's he's got maybe three years maximum left in his body I think to play. And uh, uh, I Dylan Strome isn't the guy that's gonna gonna get him those goals. I mean he's got nine now. I think like in the in the last thirty. Four games or so that washington has I mean he's got to get 16 goals this year and in, in those that short amount of time to get to 25 to think he's able to to break the record because it's going to take another two years at that rate to to go break the record if he if he stays and hovers around 14 or 15 for the year my biggest fear is that um I mean initially I thought he would stay until he broke it but he's a really proud man I mean, uh, I remember Wayne Gretzky only got nine goals in his last year, Pierre, as you remember, and and that sort of killed him because he wasn't being able to do the things that he has done his whole life. And, that's, uh, and when he couldn't do that, that's pretty frustrating for a player. So I worry if that's what's going to happen to Alex. By, by the way,
1: Jimmy, I completely agree with the coach on that. And I know I shared it with you before, and I mean this sincerely. It's not a knock on Alex. It's when you don't have that elite playmaking center like Nicky Backstrom, was and I don't know if he'll be back playing again. That's why I use the past tense. That's a problem, and they don't have uh, a centerman that can do what Backstrom can do. And and Bruce coached them. He knows.
2: Yeah, I agree with
1: the coach on that one hundred percent.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, guys, I think you know watching the Bruins growing up, and I I always wonder, you know, what would have happened, especially when Neely got into those years where he was battling the injuries yet still scoring, he doesn't do that without Adam Oates coming in to replace Craig Janey. It just doesn't happen. So, I mean, you're absolutely right guys that you need that coach. I want to ask you um, what it was like to be part of the early days and sort of the, the advent of the Sid Ovi rivalry. And, and, and just, you know, obviously Pierre knows from a broadcasting standpoint, what that did for, for the game, but what was it like being on the ice on the bench? Uh, for that rivalry rob- as it developed?
0: Well, you know what? Uh, I can tell you uh, the one thing. Pierre was in the middle of the bench almost every game we played. That's right. And, uh, <laughs> and he was seeing it firsthand when those two guys would come back uh, to the bench and they'd be swearing at each other. And uh, there was no love lost. And they're both great guys, but the competitiveness in both of these guys was incredible and i mean they would never talk alex would never talk about it but you could see him go on the ice especially and i know pierre will remember this that seven game series we had against pittsburgh uh in round two in 2008 i think when they won the cup wow they beat us in seven and and they both got a hat trick in game two Mm
2: -hmm. but i mean
0: just the look in both of their eyes like i used to see it in, in sydney coming over And when I would look down the bench and Alex wanted to go, he never wanted to come off, but I mean, he would, he would just, uh, you'd give him, he'd give you that look and you're going, uh, I gotta, I gotta get out there. And, and the intensity was incredible. And, and uh, uh, watching those guys go uh, was amazing. And and you know what, Pierre, I used to love watching him more when we played in Montreal because he seemed to love Montreal. And I mean, I remember one game, Mike Comasarek was put on, as the uh, you know the number the guy that was going to shadow alex as a defenseman and alex scored four goals or and had five points and komisarczyk by the third period couldn't wait to get off the ice because every time alex would come down he would make him look bad but i mean those are the kind of things that uh, when i'm uh really done with this game that i'll just look back and and just you know try to find video of alex doing what he did cuz it was it was fun to watch and it was especially fun when him and Sydney got together and they played against each other because the whole hockey world was watching those two young 20-something-year-old right. guys.
1: What an awesome answer. What an awesome answer to a great question. So, Coach, i got to ask you this one. Why was there such animosity between Ovechkin and Malkin? Because it looked like physically Ovechkin wanted to obliterate Malkin every single time they had a chance to play against each other.
0: Well, at that time, I mean, they'd both go home in the summer. And Alex wanted to be the number one Russian hockey player in the world. Mm -hmm. Malcolm was, I think, the second pick in the draft or third pick. No, second. He wanted wanted to be the best best young player in in the league. And so, I mean, when they hit each other or when they were playing against each other, they would run. And you know this just as well as I do. They would try to kill each other. I know they're best friends. But, I mean, back in the day, they wanted to be known as the best Russian hockey player on the planet. Good
2: stuff. You know, it just go right. ahead, Gary. Well, I can
1: tell you right now what the coach said is spot on. I mean, I did most of those games with Doc Emmerich, and first it was with John Davidson and then with Eddie Olczyk, And I can tell you, everybody focused on Crosby and Ovechkin, but I'm telling you the barbaric stuff was Ovechkin and Malkin. Yeah. Uh, and then when Tommy Wilson joined the party, it became a little <laughs> bit different for everybody. <laughs> That's another story There's for another.
2: New, There was a new sheriff in town. <laughs> The he came on board, there was a new sheriff, for sure. Yeah, and just going back to that, I mean, to that rivalry there, I mean, you guys know that was a, a very questionable time in the history of the NHL. They're coming out of that lockout there, and I almost feel like, as you guys are talking there, I don't know why it went through my head, but I just thought to, you know, the NBA, when Bird and Magic kind of saved the NBA, and you look at... What those guys did at that time for the NHL, I, I think it's a legit comparable. Am I am I crazy? I don't think you're crazy because I, I well, I am, but that's another story. But <laughs> but no, you know what I mean, Coach. I mean, it, it was it, it was like the NHL really needed that at that time, and you could tell how much the league sort of fast-forwarded a bit to where they needed to be because they had those two guys, and even you, you mentioned Malkin as well Pierre – uh they they carried the league for a good three to four years. I can agree with you, and I'll tell you, tell you when the NBA
0: had burden magic, that was the worst rating periods before that that the NBA ever had, and they made right. the league. And yeah. when Oveskin and Crosby came into the league, I mean, hockey is much further down the scale than um, uh, than basketball is. But if they didn't have those guys, And for the American TV audience, before Wayne went to L.A., I mean, uh, who knows if hockey would have made it in the States or if they would have had that expansion. But when these guys came in and and – all the all the um, reporters and the media people it doesn't matter what sport you're talking about what would, would harness or get focused on that game and they would report it even on like nbc and cbs and abc they would report these things and sports center would be leading with that when they never lead with hockey ever so to to answer your question i would think that yes yeah, they were a big portion of why hockey grew and i mean we all give wayne the credit but i mean these two guys, uh, they are also right in there.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Pierre? You know, your coach is talking about growing the game. So I'm watching Mason Lowry play for the Boston Bruins. He's the first Nevada, or sorry, Louisiana-born player ever to play in the National Hockey League. He was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And Coach Boudreaux coached a guy by the name of Simon Olivier in Mississippi. And his son, Matthew – for the Columbus Blue Jackets. Bruce, you're growing the game all over the place.
0: There you go. It's a, You know what? I still get calls um, in Mississippi. We've had reunions down there from our championship team. Uh, friends still call me, and they're saying, well, you know, big game tonight, who's going to win? You know, we're going to uh, – go on these betting sites and I'm going, you're on your own. I know nothing. Uh, (laughs) And you know what? And another thing about Lori, his dad coached in Baton Rouge. And and then he coached in Redding in the East coast league. And, uh, to see his son there, that's amazing how you even get minor hockey, quite frankly, back in those days when there was, there was maybe one arena in every town, uh, Mm -hmm every big town like Baton Rouge or Lafayette or New Orleans or Biloxi, there wasn't a lot of rinks that you could go to and play. Yeah. You know, Jimmy,
1: they had a thing when Bruce was there and I was there and Doug Shedden was coaching in Lafayette, Louisiana. So when the three of us were there, they had a thing called the Atchafalaya Cup and it was sponsored by a big bank in the south, a Louisiana bank, I think. And uh, our team ended up winning the Atchafalaya Cup. But I here's what I would tell you, after they won it, and, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be around Stanley Cup winning teams like Coach was around Memorial Cup winning teams and yep. championship teams. So I can tell you winning that Atchafalaya Cup meant as much to our players as it did for the guys in Pittsburgh when we won the Stanley Cup. I'm just telling you. And I think little things like that, like when Bruce's team won in Mississippi, that helped hockey in the South, like that part of the South. And and when we won that Atchafalaya Cup, it helped. And, you know, Bruce talked about it at the beginning, Shedden's teams in Lafayette, You know Dan O'Rourke, the official in the NHL? Yeah, yeah. He he played on that team. Oh, wow. Nice. Nice. Good stuff. They had a wagon over there. They would get 9,000 people a night, and it was like bedlam when you went in there.
0: You know what? uh, uh, Quick story. When, When Dan first got to the NHL and I was there, uh, I wasn't there much before him, but I mean, I got there and we got into a screaming match at the, at the, at the bench. I think it was in LA. And I, I said to him, I said, you're still pissed because we beat you. And that's why you're giving me the raw end of this deal. So <laughs> get over it. I, I would be yelling at him. <laughs> I, I knew he was a player uh, and he was, he was mad at our team for beating him. And we sent said, oh, oh uh, oh, and, uh, this guy, if you'll remember him, his name was Roger Maxwell. And yes. he was just a big, tough dude. And, <laughs> I, and I told him before the game, I said, I don't know who you're going to fight tonight. But, I mean, you don't fight to hurt. I mean, if you're, if you're going to survive in this world, you better fight. If you're going to fight all the time, you better fight to hurt the guy and yep. not just fight to, to hold him up. And he fought Dan O'Rourke and, and he put him in the infirmary type thing. And he came to me uh, uh, after that fight he didn't even go to the penalty box he came right over the bench
2: he says is that better coach <laughs> I, so
0: I said yes Roger that was better
2: <laughs> Bruce I want you to know before we let you go here too we got a couple folks from Vancouver over in the in our chat room here but they just wanted me to let you know how much they loved you there and I guess that was actually one of the questions I wanted to ask I know it didn't end the way you wanted there but what did it mean to you to get the outpouring of love you got from fans and media and players uh, before you guys parted ways there? Well, it was, nobody likes
0: to get fired. And and I don't think there's a coach alive that gets out of the game uh, almost the right way where you get to retire, unless you're Al Arbor or or Scotty, you know, usually it ends up bad for somebody, but I mean um, uh, that night, I mean, was, one of the more incredible nights of, of my life. If you're going to get fired, this was the way to get fired. Yeah. Uh, a, you knew it was coming. I mean, I knew it was coming for three months and just kept, they wouldn't tell me. I, I, as a matter of fact, I asked that morning, I said, can you tell me guys what's going on? And they still wouldn't tell me what was going on, but I, I knew what was happening. And, um, uh, so I told the players, I said, this is our last game together. And the players were great. Uh, the players stayed on the ice and, and wouldn't, wouldn't go off until the crowd stopped cheering and which, you know, like a pretty emotional time. But I mean, and the, the, the the great thing that I'll probably take to my grave that I didn't even understand at that moment is when I'm addressing, you never get a chance to address the players when you're let go. Usually Mm -hmm. you'll be called into the office after practice or uh, the, on a day off or something. And you don't get to address the players as a group. And, um, Uh, I did and they all we all started crying in the room it was crazy like I mean I'm not just saying sobbing I mean there was guys that would come up or put their arm around me and were crying like they had lost their father or something and it was uh, it was so touching like I mean uh it's probably one of the greatest memories I'll ever have on one of the worst situations that ever went through well, it speaks to
1: you as a person and speaks to your character and how much respect your players have for you. Uh, I know I coached against you, and I had a tremendous amount of respect for you, Bruce, because of the way you carried yourself and your passion for the game, and you did things right. And uh, coming on with us, we're so appreciative. You have no idea how appreciative we are. And thank you so much. It means a lot to
2: both of yeah. us. Yeah, thanks, Coach. I,
0: uh, you know what? Thanks for having me on, first of all. Secondly, I wish I was better on this. Computer, phone thing. I mean, no I am <laughs> so, like, I mean, if we had a typewriter, I could use typewriters better than I could use computers. I can tell you that much right now.
2: <laughs> there you go. what's the Was the writer's name in Slapshot, Bruce? I forget. Ricky Dunn. Ricky, Ricky Dunn. Dun, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having me, man. All right. Good show. Good show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Nice, Bruce coach. will you join us here. Be sure to check him out on the NHL Network tonight. And he's all, he's on there frequently. So check him out there. And hopefully behind an NHL bench soon again, Pierre. I think
1: yeah, you know, no, I mean like Bruce. Sometimes you get done dirty. Sometimes you get done dirty. And and yeah, you know, I am really happy for Rick Tocchet, who's one of my favorite players I ever had the privilege of coaching. And I'm thrilled to death for Sergei Gonchar, who I have so much respect for. But Bruce was there, and, you know, stuff didn't work out. It just didn't work out. And you can see where the team is. The team's yep. pretty darn good right now. Yep. So, anyways, the one thing, and he said it best, outside of Scotty and Al Arbor, there are not a lot of guys that get the pick when they leave. They're well, just, they Scotty play. had
2: that line to you. What did he say? He said
1: – All coaches are interim.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're all interim. <laughs> Don't never, ever forget I'll, it.
1: I'll never forget it was his press conference in Pittsburgh in 1991 – we had just won the cup. Badger Bob was obviously very ill. He had brain cancer, terminal brain cancer. And uh, I remember Scotty doing the press conference and saying, yep, we're all in term. Yep. The writer was like, whoa, that's pretty strong. But yeah, it was it's true. true. it's true. It's
2: very yep. true. It's true. And, you know, look, I, uh, one thing I love about Bruce, like you said it numerous times to him there, is his passion for the game and you know, I I think, Pierre, you're you're in and around a game like me. And one of my favorite things about being part of this and, and getting to do the job I do is meeting people like him who just, they just breathe the game. Like, it's like they speak, and, and it just comes right out. You know, their love for the game, their love for life. And it's inspiring because, I mean, we all go through our ups and downs, and, you know, people like him who just never give up, and they just keep, fall in that dream and, and they enjoy every second that they can. I mean, that's, that's what we need. Not just in a game, in life Pierre. I, I, I think it's great as a life lesson as well to, to see a guy like Bruce Boudreaux.
1: Well, he's a lifer. He's a hockey lifer. Yep. Uh, what I remember, you know, just so you understand that Southern corridor back in the day, um, Shedden was in Lafayette, Louisiana. I was in Baton Rouge. Boudreaux was in Mississippi Eddie Johnstone, who used to play for the New York Rangers, was in Mobile, Alabama, and there was a guy by the name of Bruce Cassidy who was in Jacksonville, Florida. Yep. Um, and it was it was amazing. Terry Christensen was coaching in Pensacola. He was a longtime coach at Michigan State for Ron Mason. it mean, was a murderer's row of coaches back then. It really was. Um, and, and I can tell you, like, again, Lafayette, Baton Rouge, and Mississippi – if you were into the physical stuff that there was like, there was no nights off to me. And yeah. it was amazing. The players would get mad at one another. And sometimes during the game, the coaches would say stuff under their breath, you know, whether it was Shedden or me or, or Boudreaux. But when it was all said and done, we still could look at each other. Cause we we're all going through the same stuff. And, and, you know, yeah, yeah, or whatever. you could just, you could still talk and still be civil. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think I told you the story once because this is one I don't really get mad at too much. One of the things that's kind of irksome to me now in the NHL is the disconnect between coaching staffs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like verboten. You're not allowed to talk to the other guy. Well, let yeah. me, you know, Bruce brought up Al Arbor. When I was a young coach, head coach in the league, I the trainer from the Islanders would come down, knock on the door and say, hey. What are you doing right now? I said, not much. Why? He says, Al would love to have a cup of coffee with you and smoke a cigarette. Well, I didn't smoke, but I'd go down to Al Arbor's office before the game. This is before the wow. game. And wow. we wouldn't even talk hockey. He'd say, hey, when's the last time you talked to Scotty? Or how's your family doing? Or any anything going wrong? How's your health? Like, he was amazing. That's he was awesome. amazing. You know what I'm saying? He said, hey, you're, you're tight with one of my good friends from St. Louis. I go, who's that? He goes, Jimmy Roberts. I said, yeah, I'm really tight. <laughs> I talk to him every day. He goes, oh, I know. And this is before a cell phone. So back then there was a civility and ability to talk amongst the yeah. fraternity. Now all they do is they do it at the end of the year and they make it look good at, you know, the coaches. conference, kind it's just going to
2: say they still have that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm,
1: I don't know. I, I remember like that, that that foray into the East Coast League for me was great because, I, sounds- you know, look at all those coaches I just brought up. It yeah. was yeah. There's a row of coaches. Shedden's still coaching in Europe. Boudreaux's going to go back and coach. catsy just won the Stanley Cup in Vegas. I mean, yeah. you know, we're all knocking heads against each other. It was pretty amazing.
2: That's great. So Is Sneddon in any relation to the one that coached in Vermont here? No, different, different spelling. Different, different people. Okay, yeah. different spelling. All so that's
1: right. when that coach of Vermont played at Harvard, and his first real opportunity was at Union
2: College, and then he okay. moved up to Vermont. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, I there. Confused All right, um, I th- what do you think, Pierre? Co- time for a couple here or what? Always, uh, we got right. like, a few. We, I, I, we
1: I, get to the questions. Yeah, we got to be transparent with our audience. What do we talk about before? How much we appreciate the professionalism, I mean, of the questions, and dealing with our audience. It's one. It's one of the things mm-hmm. I look forward to every day. You know, yeah. I really do. I look forward to interacting with our audience.
2: And you know what I love, and we've got one now, is when you guys send us these video questions, uh, like Shane has done, uh, and Evan, <laughs> like, and so I think we got one right now, guys. Can we play that one I sent you earlier that uh, that Evan sent us? I don't know if we have oh, it.
1: We don't have it. Okay, that's fine. That's Okay,
2: that's all right. If they do, no, they don't have it. All right, we'll get it tomorrow. I'll get it to you. I promise. Um, but let's go to some questions that we got right now in the chat room. This is a question for this from Alex Evanowski question for whoever, what team do you think was Bruce's best chance to win the cup? The caps 2009 caps 2010 or the 2015 Anaheim ducks. Pierre, before you get to, I'm just going to say 2010. And like they did so many times to the Boston Bruins, the Montreal Canadiens screwed it up.
1: I'm going to say the 2010 team. I did every single game in that series. Washington had a significant lead. And then Yarrow Spotchek started blocking shots and driving Ovechkin nuts. And uh, Roman Hamrlik started driving some of the Washington Capitals forwards nuts. And then Montreal had some amazing performances by certain guys, especially Mike Camilleri. So I'm going to say that team, but there's no way Washington should have lost to that team, but they did. And it was too bad. It was just too bad.
2: Yep. All right, let's go. Next question do we think Alex Ovechkin ends his career in Washington or could we see him play on a different team? Funny, Pierre, you know, so I, I noticed this question as, as coach, you guys were talking about Alex, right? And is he, we were talking about Sid and all that. And then as I'm reading that question and I'm th- I, the first thing that came to my, I don't think, I don't really think it would happen, but if it did, the one city that always came into my mind was Montreal. And a few seconds later, coach goes, you know where he always played well it was Montreal, and that's exactly why. Yeah. For some reason, he lit up when he would go to Montreal. He he just loves playing in front of those fans. I think it would be one heck of a relationship between him and the fans uh, at the Bell Center if they could make that happen. But I don't know, Pierre. I mean, I just I just can't You know,
1: see what? You know what? I'm not going to speculate on it, but here's what I will say. It would be an amazing thing for the fans in Montreal if they ever had a player like that for a short period of time. I, I think it would be wild. Oh, you my know.
2: gosh. And they, they yeah. embrace Russians. I mean, look, at, no, I know he was a crap dude, they loved Kovalev. They yeah, loved they,
1: Kovalev. They have no problem with that. Look at Andre Markov. They have, no, they yeah. loved Andre Markov there. I mean, no, there's not a problem with that in Montreal. No chance.
2: All right, we got a couple more here. And Evan, I promise we're going to get you yours tomorrow. Oh, here is Evan with another one. Uh, Evan McLaren, I wonder what Bruce would do to fix the power play in Pittsburgh. Man, uh, he had coach Sid and Ovi in his career. But
1: I'll tell you what he would do. The same thing he did in Washington. Um, what they did was everything went through Nicholas Bax from Stick on the power play there. And that's what set everything up for John Carlson, for Ovechkin. Uh, and a great question, by the way, Evan. And I've said this a million times on Pittsburgh radio, and I've talked to people that are involved with it. And I said, You got to turn Sid Crosby into Nick Backstrom. Everything's got to go through Sid Stick, Mm -hmm. and until you do that, you're gonna have a problem because you're you're expecting Latang and or Carlson to run it up high, and everybody knows that, and they're overplaying those guys, and it's causing problems. So get everything through Sid Stick, and it it would change the power play significantly in Pittsburgh. significantly.
2: I we got time for two more here, and then I got to get on the road. I I got a
1: question. Um, and this is important. Bruce was in charge of the power play there, but um, he had a guy by the name of Blaine Forsyth who's now working in Arizona. And, yep. and Blaine was and, – and I hope somebody gets this to Blaine. He was letter perfect on the power play. And you look at Arizona's power play, it's pretty good right now. But in Washington, they were always third, second, or first in the power play when he was there. And I know Bruce was part of it, but so was Blaine Forsythe. just so we're clear.
2: Good man. And, uh, yeah, we'll take two more here. Uh, what do we got? Randy Workman, I hate this offside reviews on goals. Is there a way we can do anything to improve this? Yeah, Randy. There is. You know, I'm giving the old, uh, was it Roger Nielsen with the, the, the towel? White, white towel. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know how to do it.
1: Um, so here's my thought, and I've been saying it for five years, Randy, and maybe some people say you're just stupid and you don't know what you're talking about. Once the puck breaks the plane on the top of the blue line, everything's onside. It's not the puck has to cross the blue line. Once the puck touches the top of the plane of the blue line, everything's onside. Think about how minuscule some of those are, but the puck's already in the blue. It's just not over the blue. So my point is, if you just did that and players were aware of that, I think you would get rid of all this nonsense, all of it.
2: Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. We gotta. We'll see. It's definitely going to be something. Again, they look at in the off season. Uh, I hope they can fix it. Well, listen, we're all set for today, guys. I actually got a got a dinner date with uh, my daughter Maddie Pierre. Looking forward to that. I know she's watching. So, hello, Maddie. Hey, uh, yep, she's loving this, and uh, I'm glad we got so many viewers here. And guys, we appreciate your questions, like we said. Uh, and what an interview that was, Pierre. Like I said, he's. He's inspired me. Every once in a while, you know, we, we need interviews like that where you just get a guy like, man, life is good. He, that's what you come away with when you talk to people like Bruce Boudreaux. Pretty
1: amazing week so far in the old house. Oh, island.
2: wow. And it's getting better. Shannon, got- John Shannon tomorrow. And I can wow. tell you right now,
1: I have been in the league for three decades. Not sure there's anybody that's been as closely tied in to the broadcast part, the management mm-hmm. part the business part, and the insider part than John Chan. I'm telling you, like, he's been all over the place as a broadcaster, as as a producer, uh, working on the American side, working on the team side, working on the Canadian side, working on Hockey Night in Canada, working as a podcast. I mean, he's done it all, and he is a tremendous hockey person. He
2: really is. And that says a lot, considering how much broadcasting, you know, how far it's come here over the last 20 years or so. It's in I know. I mean, I got to know him a bit when I did some stuff for NHL.com. He's a great man, and he's he's just such a brilliant mind. Um, His mind is
1: brilliant. That's a good description. I agree. The league is
2: a better place for it because of John Shannon. So I look forward to that interview tomorrow, and we'll talk about the NHL All-Star Game being in Toronto, and you know, sort of what that means for that area, Pierre. Because I mean, our Montreal crowd will not like to hear it, but they are one of the hockey meccas of the world, and. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's good to see all-star weekend in a Canadian market because Pierre, you've been to the one you were at the ones in Montreal and you've been to some other Canadian markets. Uh, but still to this day, the, the Montreal one was great back in, I think it was 09 when they did their centennial. Uh, that was something. And it's just, it's great to see it in a market that's so passionate about the game. So looking forward to Heard some stuff about that uh and well, we to- before you go before yep. you go you're talking about great
1: hockey markets i'm not letting you off the hook because our friday guest lives in grand oh, forks yes. North Dakota, and you want to talk about great hockey markets you go to ralph engelstadt arena in grand forks north dakota mm-hmm. where I've been many many times sometimes warm mostly cold to get in um we're having Brad Berry on, the coach yeah. of the University of North Dakota. He's been there nine years as a head coach. He played there as a player. He was an assistant coach. Um, he's a phenomenal hockey person. Uh, I did a lot of business with him a few years ago when Ottawa owned uh, Jake Sanderson and owned Tyler Clevin. And, uh, you know, just totally up board, totally honest. You know, it's never easy to go in and tell a coach, hey, we want to take your players out of your program. You know, and and Brad met me and we talked. It was really perfect. He's such a professional man, um, no ill will, no hard feelings. At least he never voiced those to me. And he lost a player in Sanderson as a sophomore. Yeah. That you know, I think if he stays another year, he might have won the Hobie Baker. And and Clevin actually stayed an extra year. He's playing in yeah. Belleville in the American League right now. But both those guys, Brad couldn't have been more accommodating. And I, every day that I spent with him. I learned something new, and I appreciated his professionalism. Look it's forward amazing. to that. Really He'll good, that. and I way, that. that's where my father's from. And uh, you know, we just yeah, that's right. Yeah, our family farm was sold. I think three or four years ago. It was a little bit north of uh, a little bit north of Grand Forks, but uh, I my grandfather I think was in one of the first graduating classes from the University of North Dakota, and I know my two aunts, Oral and Merle. I think we're in the first female graduating class from the University of North Dakota. Oh, wow. So I've I've got a lot of respect for the community and I've never had a bad trip there ever.
2: It's one of those barns I got to get to, but you know, Pierre, you bring up a thing there. We'll talk about another time. I think it's a great aspect to ask you about is what it is like when a coach and a team have to meet and discuss that uncomfortable situation where, Hey, we think he's ready. What, what do we got to do to get him on here? So that, I think that would be a great thing to talk about for our viewers.
1: You know, what I like, to is I think we'll, what I'll try to do, um, we'll do that, and I'll get a player that's actually done it. Okay, cool. And that would what be awesome. And, and I've got a few guys in mind, mm-hmm. um, high-profile players, good, really good players in college but left early and what that whole thing was like for them when they're watching maybe their former teammates in college winning championships uh, or maybe not doing well and them doing better, you know? So yeah. I'll, I'll try to, uh, I've got a
2: few guys in mind that I think will be great able stuff. to get. So All right. Thank you, Jimmy. Yep. I, I look forward to that. All right. Well, listen, another great addition. Thanks to Bruce Boudreaux. Thanks to our production staff as well. Thanks to you, the viewers and the listeners. We appreciate it. For Pierre McGuire, I'm Jimmy Murphy. This has been another edition of the Eye Test here on the Sick Podcast Network.
0: And that's a wrap. Hope you don't miss us too much until next time. Follow the eye test with Pierre McGuire and Jimmy Murphy on YouTube, Facebook, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts.